Greetings, welcome, salutations, one and all, to this inaugural episode of Finneran's Wake. The purpose of this segment is, once a week, at the end of each week, to recapitulate the three most important news stories of the past seven days, the three most consequential events to have happened in America and abroad, of which, no matter how busy you are, you'll want to be apprised. It's my humble aim to bring that awareness to you as concisely, honestly, and eloquently as I can. I know how limited and precious your time is, and just how quickly it tends to vanish. I also know how much there is to know these days, and the difficulty in finding a dispassionate and reliable source from whom to get good information. My goal is to give you this information, and to leave you just a bit more enlightened than you came. Today, we'll cover the following three items. A racially motivated shooting in Buffalo claimed the lives of ten people, whom the assailant, a young white supremacist, deliberately targeted. The stock market suffered its worst week since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. The financial future of the country appears to be, at best, inauspicious. The Disinformation Governance Board, whose creation was announced just three weeks ago, has dissolved. We begin with a heavy heart in the city of Buffalo. On Saturday, a week ago today, there was a mass shooting at a local grocery store in Buffalo, New York. Of the 13 people shot, 10 died, making this one of the deadliest mass killing events of the year. The racial composition of those murdered is noteworthy. Of the 13 people shot, 11 were black. This seems to have been the shooter's intent about whose uh, horrible white supremacist anti-Semitic views we've learned more than we might have wanted to know. The man, 18 years of age, left his home in Conklin, New York, in the middle of the state, and proceeded to travel some 200 miles west to Buffalo in order to carry out his plan. He chose this city and its neighboring Topps supermarket with the foreknowledge that a majority of its inhabitants and patrons are black. It was the place nearest his home at which the largest number of black people would be concentrated on this day. After visiting and scoping out the grocery store the day prior, the shooter, with malice aforethought and sanguinary intent, loaded his rifle and walked toward the store's entrance. There, a valiant security guard who'd retired from the Buffalo police force, attempted to subdue him. Shielded by a tactical bulletproof vest, the assailant was able to absorb the guard's blow, return it with his own, his being lethal, and carry on with his rampage through the store. Eventually, he emerged from the store, threatened to kill himself, his final act being a fellow de se, was disarmed and brought into custody. 
the rifle, on which a racial epithet was etched, and the number 14 written, was purchased from a vintage gun store and modified thereafter. The number 14 is a numerical symbol for a white supremacist mantra composed of 14 words. That mantra reads as follows, quote, We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children, unquote. An online screed, or as some are loosely calling it, a manifesto, is being attributed to the killer's authorship. The 180-page Google Doc details, in rambling fashion, the venomous views with which his troubled mind was filled. In it, his hostility toward the Jewish population is particularly noteworthy and unconcealed, as is his disdain for all non-white races. He makes repeated reference to the Great Replacement Theory, which posits, somewhere above and outside the formal government, the existence of a small, scheming Jewish cabal in control of America's politics and demographic makeup. The theory, born of the French socialist Renaud Camus, maintains that these Jews, under whose dark power no light can be shown, from whose miserly grasp the levers of power can't be freed, are degrading our Eurocentric society, ravaging our Western culture, and, above all, diluting the white race. The term has since been stretched to encompass much more than just unvarnished conspiratorial racism and anti-Semitism. Now, it gives cover to many politically expedient attacks. Those, for instance, who have misgivings about the prospect of two to three million people illegally entering our country across the southern border are now being branded with the hideous label Great Replacement Theorists. Those who watch Tucker Carlson listen to Ben Shapiro or pine for the days of Donald Trump are, likewise, being slapped with the odious name. This type of thinking is dishonest and divisive, and ought to be resisted with every ounce of your strength. It's led to calls for censorship of those by whom such commonplace matters, matters like voting habits, immigration trends, and cultural assimilation, are discussed. More than ever, I think, in a free, open, and liberal society, these issues must be discussed. Using the killer's screed as a justification to constrain this type of speech, as many would like to see done, would be imprudent, illiberal, and, above all, unconstitutional. It would lead us down a dangerous path from which, lest we stumble, we ought carefully to stray. No doubt, to say the very least, the killer was mentally unwell, a fact to which his prior record as a minor loudly attests. He was subjected to a psychiatric evaluation after threatening, in a school assignment, to commit both homicide and suicide, a threat on which, if only partially, he's now made good. I think he is the very embodiment of evil. He cited as his murderous models Dylan Roof, by whom nine black parishioners were killed in a South Carolina church, 
and Brenton Tarrant, by whom 51 Muslims were killed in a New Zealand mosque. He's pleaded not guilty to murder in the first degree and, at present, awaits trial in New York. In the realm of finance and economics, the news is no happier. This past Wednesday witnessed the biggest one-day decline in the S&P 500 since June 2020, the height of the COVID pandemic. Back then, you'll recall, the economy was brought to a sudden halt, induced into an unnatural coma by the worldwide attempt to stop the spread. An attempt at whose efficacy, I think, with the passage of time, we can all look back doubtingly. As of Friday, according to CNBC, the S&P 500, an index by which the top 500 American companies are tracked, was down 4.5%. The Nasdaq, a stock exchange market, was down 5.6%. The S&P 500, according to CNBC, fell into what's called a bear market, a situation that's a bit subjective and a bit objective. Objectively, it's defined as a period during which prices decline by 20%. Subjectively, it's the concomitant pessimism investors feel as they bleed and bleed and bleed more money. Why so precipitous a drop, you might ask? Are we not long past the gloomy, unprosperous depths of the pandemic? Eh, well, a few reasons suggest themselves as to why. First, there's inflation, the rampant problem over which our federal government has been unable to get control. Not since the 1970s and 80s, some 40 years ago, have we seen inflation this high. With an excess of dollars chasing fewer goods, purchasing power is weakened, savings are diminished, and our currency carries less value. In response to this, the Federal Reserve is and will continue raising interest rates, which makes it more expensive for banks to exchange funds overnight and for you to get a loan. Second, there is decreased consumer demand, perhaps a downstream effect of inflation. This was made evident by earnings reports unveiled by two of America's largest retailers, Target and Walmart, which were far lower than expected. The fear is that these two companies and their anemic figures are harbingers of weak earnings reports to come. Costco, Best Buy, Ulta, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and Dollar General released their reports in the next few weeks, from which we'll really be able to see just how limp consumer demand is and the severity of danger toward which our economy is headed. Third, there's the growing fear of a forthcoming recession, the specter by which the financial world is haunted. Experts are predicting a 28% chance of recession within the next 12 months, but don't be surprised if this number rises as consumer demand drops. A recession is defined as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. A depression, on the other hand, doesn't have as clear a definition. Most agree it's a recession of longer duration and deeper depth. The question, then, is whether or not this present dip, in a dip it most certainly is, will result in a V-shaped or a U-shaped recovery. The former 
is preferable, as it indicates a swift return to prosperity. You plummet to the nadir, touching that bottom point of the V, and then, just as quickly, rise again. It's as though you leap into a pool, touch the bottom, and spring up to the surface for breath. The ladder, the U-shape, indicates a prolonged time of lack of growth and gloom. The last two economic downturns, that of 2020 and 2018, resulted in a V-shaped recovery. This time, things could be different. As to whether or not you should buy the dip, as Investing 101 advises, you could, but don't expect a hefty return on your investment anytime soon. It's difficult to predict how long the bottom part of the U might be drawn out before turning upward again. And finally, the Disinformation Governance Board, whose creation the Biden administration announced just three weeks ago, has been dissolved. More accurately, its operations have been temporarily suspended. Paused, if you will. But it seems, moving forward, they're unlikely to be brought back to any real semblance of life. Of course, I should say, one can never be certain that once given life, an administrative body such as this ever truly dies. It tends, rather, to have a Frankensteinian nature, resisting the efforts of its makers and its funders, namely the tax-paying American population, among whom you and I count ourselves, to send it to the grave. Such boards are very seldom fully extinguished, We'll just have to be attentive to any posthumous twitching of its muscles or flickering in its eyes. Until then, the controversial board at whose helm a one Miss Nina Jankowitz stood has been aborted, according to the Department of Homeland Security, under whose purview it was originally formed. Now, the purpose of the board was never explicitly clear. Its stated aim was to counter misinformation related to homeland security, focused, quote, specifically on irregular migration in Russia. It's here, right out of the gate, that the board stumbles. In its own words, its intent is to combat misinformation, not disinformation, as its title would suggest. A proper definition and use of these two words, misinformation and disinformation, between which there stretches a wide gap of meaning, is vitally important. Misinformation, the more innocuous of the two, is wrong, merely. It's a statement made in error, by whose promulgation no deliberate deceit is intended. There are countless things about which we are misinformed throughout the course of a single day. I might be misinformed by a friend whose goal it is to convey me the fastest route to Target from her house. In sending me into an hour of unneeded traffic, she wasn't deliberately misleading me, but she was nonetheless wrong to think that Livingston Road as opposed to Pine Ridge Road would get me there in the shortest amount of time. Also, I should note, that which is deemed misinformation today is not infrequently declared truthful tomorrow. Contrarily, disinformation, the much more pernicious of the two, is deliberately deceitful and usually has a political motive behind it. 
It would be disinformation, say, for the Chinese government to promulgate the fantastic idea that the COVID-19 virus originated not in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the likely place of its genesis, but with American servicemen stationed in Asia, by whom, according to the story circulated in 2020, it was spread. So, you see, the two terms are not interchangeable. Yet the Disinformation Governance Board seemed comfortable in its flexible use of them. As noted, the board was led by Nina Jankowitz, a young woman, 33 years of age, behind whom there seemed to be only tepid support. She declared herself in a cringe-inducing, widely shared Twitter post, the, quote, Mary Poppins of Disinformation, unquote. Now, the aptness of the soi disant title was, I must say, justified. She restylized the famous song Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, giving it lyrics related to her field. Now, her voice, while inarguably sweet, might have been directed toward less obnoxious musical endeavors. She simply wasn't tuned to the times. If the government is to involve itself in censoring disinformation, to which constitutionally it has no right, it had better do so with the assurance of complete impartiality by a person unimpeachably honest and far less histrionic. Jankowitz was anything but. She was known on her social media platforms to parrot Trump-Russia collusion talking points, that scandal that never was, that crime of the century of which, a century hence, will still be awaiting evidence. More recently, in the autumn of 2020, she dismissed, alongside most other legacy newsrooms and corporate journalists, the Hunter Biden laptop story, calling it, dismissively, Russian disinformation. The very threat against which she was ostensibly hired to fight, to which, one would think, Given her lofty appointment, she'd be more sensitive. Well, she also wrongly called the laptop, on which so much unflattering data was stored, a, quote, Trump campaign product, end quote, when any clear-eyed observer could affirm its authenticity at a glance. It's since been confirmed by multiple outlets from the New York Post to the New York Times to have belonged to the president's wayward son. We almost had a shameless purveyor of disinformation adjudicating what is or isn't disinformation. <laughs> it would be as though we hired an arsonist to oversee the causes of house fires. Now, Jankowitz submitted her resignation on Tuesday. The Disinformation Governance Board, about whose similarities to George Orwell's Ministry of Truth Not Enough Can Be Said, is paused until further notice. And there you have it, friends, the three most important news items of the week. Before we go, as will be my tradition each week, I will leave you with a quotation. This one comes from Horace Walpole, Lord Orford. He was an English writer and connoisseur and the son of the perhaps more famous Robert Walpole. Now, he said, quote, All his own geese are swans as the swans of others are geese. 
this bespeaks the bias we often have uh, toward our own possessions and the unfairness with which we view the superiority of others. And with that, remember to leave a five-star rating on this channel. Follow my substack at Finnerin's Wake. Visit my website that goes by the same name. And send me an email at finnerinswake at gmail.com. And with that, until next week, fare thee well. Mm-hmm.